you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. In the last Twilight Zone podcast, I announced that I was going to start work on a special episode of the show, which looks at Rod Serling's original script for Planet of the Apes. Now that's in process, but it's something that's taken me a little time to find what I want the shape of it to be, and I'm currently working on that and really enjoying it, but I want it to be something special, so that is taking a little bit more time. But in the meantime, people write into me, people make pledges and so on, and I don't want to fall too far behind on those listener feedback emails. So what I've decided to do is I'm going to clear the decks for a little bit, and I'm going to catch up on what I need to, otherwise I start to lose track. And I don't want anyone to contribute something and for it not to be acknowledged in some way. So on tonight's show... I'm going to read some of those listener emails, say my thank yous to the people who I want to say thank you to, and then I'm going to play you a little special episode of something that I've been working on recently as well. But let's start with those listener emails in, submitted for your approval. I've had an email from longtime friend of the show, Al, and he says, Hi Tom, I have to say, man, you continue to impress me. I figured if there was any episode that was so bland as to be unworthy of a podcast, it would be one more Paul Bearer. And then you put together an hour on it that held my attention the entire time. I never thought of the comparison with the old Dark House films, which I thought was brilliant. And I'd forgotten about Joseph Wiseman's big movie role. As soon as you mentioned James Bond, it suddenly hit me, and I actually said aloud, Dr. No. My view of this episode has always been close to Mark Scott Zickery's. It's not that I feel like Paul is a character worth supporting, but the others seem so harsh and unforgiving. Granted, he did refuse a military order that apparently caused a lot of deaths. Still, I think more time is needed to be taken to truly lay out why Paul is unworthy of any sympathy. I had never bothered to take it any further than that, but your take, I think, is perceptive and spot on. Depriving Paul of the apologies he seeks is punishment enough. He doesn't need to be driven insane too. Of course, without the insanity, the story doesn't have a twist. But who needs a twist? I also appreciated your take on Paul as a man who is unable to take blame for any of his actions. Something else I hadn't considered. When you got to that part, I felt like Shelley Behrman finishing reading the book in The Mind and the Matter. You know that moment of, he's right, you very diplomatically did not mention the most obvious example of this type of personality, the current President of the United States. I would say that in his case, being driven mad would be a nice sort of justice, except I'm afraid he already is. Do I even need to say it? I think it's taken as a given, but great job. Well, thank you, Al. I think sometimes these middling episodes or the episodes that don't get discussed so much, 
I almost prefer talking about them in a way because there's a little bit more to dig into, although there wasn't really much trivia on that one. So I really had to dig deep on it and, and just see what I could do, but, but I'm glad you enjoyed it and hopefully it, it turned out right for everyone else as well. Another long-time friend of the show, Stephen, in San Francisco wrote in, and I actually mentioned him briefly in that One More Paul Bearer episode. He says, Hi Tom, a recurring theme in the Twilight Zone is retribution. I think that audiences prefer to see punishment that fits the crime. You mentioned Death's Head Revisited, and it's easy to recognise the great evil of the sadistic Nazi captain in that episode, in which he received the worst punishment, the Twilight Zone could inflict. In One More Paul Bearer, the school teacher says Paul Raiden is a devious, dishonest troublemaker. Raiden claims he was a poor, frightened, desperate boy. When we learn that the adult Raiden was responsible for the deaths of many soldiers and the suicide of his fiancée, we lose any sympathy for him and judge him evil. In Season 3 we get three tales of retribution, Death's Head Revisited, One More Paul Bearer, and a piano in the house. One more Paul Bearer and a piano in the house are so similar, I wonder why Sailing put them in the same season. In both episodes, there is an abusive man, who underneath the surface is a frightened, insecure boy. And in both episodes, that man is humiliated and shunned. If Sailing were alive today, producing provocative and socially relevant Twilight Zone episodes, I wonder what he would make of the Me Too movement would the Twilight Zone inflict retribution on the predatory sexual behaviour of a powerful man? What kind of punishment would fit that crime? I'm reminded of Scrooge in Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Scrooge was a poor, frightened, desperate boy, just like the abusive men in One More Pallbearer and The Piano in the House. But partly by the threat of retribution, Scrooge was encouraged to redeem himself. Happily he did. Regards, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. You know, it's been a while since I've watched Piano in the House and I can't really remember it, so I'm really going to look out for that one after your email and see how it fits into this kind of retribution trilogy, I suppose. You know, sometimes episodes do group themselves that way. Things like Walking Distance and A Stop at Willoughby, that kind of thing. So yeah, I'm going to look forward to that one. And as ever, Stephen, thank you for writing in. Okay, good friend of the show, Jack Ward, wrote in and he said, Hi Tom, congratulations on the win. I just listened to it. Couldn't have happened to a better podcast than host, my friend. One more Paul Bearer made me think. I never considered it to be one of the A Twilight Zones, for the ending seemed to hit flatly. I forgot who said it. Maybe I first heard it in for your approval, the documentary on Rod's life. But someone mentioned that Rod wrote two kinds of protagonists those that deserved a chance, and those that got their comeuppance. It strikes me that Paul Raiden was the latter, and not the former. At some point I'd like to go through the Rod shows I remember, and see if that's true all the way through, but it seems to ring true for me. All the best. Keep on casting, and I'll keep on writing. Well, I hope you do, Jack. Thanks so much for writing in. You know, I think for the most part that is probably true. There are probably going to be exceptions, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I think I've said that on the show myself. The Twilight Zone either gives someone a leg up, it punishes them, or it just does something completely out of the ordinary for a reason we don't understand. So that kind of fits with that whole thing. Thanks for writing in, Jack. 
Now, this is an email from a new friend of the show, Kevin, and he's putting out a little appeal, I guess, and I I thought I'd read this out because I don't know the answer to it, but someone who listens to the Twilight Zone podcast might. So Kevin says, Tom, in my memory of age 10, I'm 56, is a black and white sci-fi movie watched on TV. No luck trying to find it. It had to do with aliens, with big heads, coming to take over the earth. Not sure whose side, but there was an army of silver humanoid robots with big black eyes. The scene that stands out is one of those robots missing an arm and burning on the ground. If you have any ideas, it would be great. I love the TZ podcast and that's Kevin in Maine. Well, Kevin, I'm not too sure myself. I think, apart from the Twilight Zone, my my kind of area of speciality is more... 70s and 80s horror movies but I know we have a a large audience here and a very knowledgeable audience so hopefully that will uh, jog the memory of someone out there and they will let us know so if you do know what movie Kevin is thinking of then write to me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com and I will pass that on to Kevin thanks for writing in Okay, another long-time friend of the show, Chad, has sent in an audio clip, and you know how much I love getting those. So let's hand over to Chad. Hi, Tom. It's Chad here with an observation on one more pallbearer and also one more idea for the mother mystery of Death's Head Revisited. On one more pallbearer, I was really struck between the parallels between this episode and The Shelter, Uh, in a reverse order, uh, like opposites. In both cases, the characters believe that atomic bombings are imminent when they actually aren't. In One More Pallbearer, the characters are welcomed into a bomb shelter and they struggle and fight to get out. While in The Shelter, the characters are not welcome into the bomb shelter because there isn't enough room and they burst into the shelter. Uh, I did like this episode a lot. I agree with you that it's in the upper echelon of episodes, but not necessarily at the top. Um, In your show about One More Paul Bearer, there was an interesting discussion at the end in the mailbag portion um, about why Robert Redford's character in uh, Death's Head Revisited might have referred to the woman as mother as he was leading her outside into death. Um, and this episode, again, kind of paralleling, I sort of paralleled this a little bit with One for the Angels, uh, which is a show I've got a soft spot for. In that one, you know, death is trying to take the life of a salesman. He's kind of worked out a trick to keep himself alive, but death has told him he's going to get somebody. And death Uh, is taking a little girl that the salesman knows, so he sort of makes his big pitch to trade his life for hers, and he makes the pitch, and he, you know, trades his life, and she gets spared, and he goes off into death, and I thought both of these episodes really dovetailed well, kind of like one more pallbearer in the shelter. Um, But in the question of why Redford's character might have referred to Mother, um, I like that this is an open question and there's no definitive answer because there's room for imagination as to what the meaning is, if there is one. Um, But some great ideas were floated, like that its Mother is a term of deference and and endearment. Um, Also, the metaphor of, you know, Mother Earth 
you know, and that women are ultimately the givers of life. And, you know, maybe that was kind of a metaphor being used. I also had this idea of why uh, he would refer to her as mother in that, you know, she was afraid and the whole episode is about her fear of death. And he's sort of gently leading her into this, that there's nothing to be afraid of. And a lot of times, especially in sort of a parent-child relationship, an adult can be afraid of something, but if their child uh, is there and also afraid of it, a lot of times the adult will sort of snap into a parent role and take on a bit more courage for the sake of the child to comfort the child and make them feel like everything's okay. And in that way, I think, you know, it's possible that Redford could have been putting him in the position of a child, putting her in the position of mother to put her in that headspace of, you know, being the, the parent uh, that's courageous and that everything's going to be okay, um, and to be strong for him, you know, in that way, giving her strength. So it's just another idea, another little theory that uh, came to mind when I was listening to the discussion on that, which I thought was really interesting. Anyway, uh, congrats on the well-deserved Rondo Award, and also I'm very excited for the Planet of the Apes episode that it sounds like you're working on for the next one. So cheers, look forward to it, and keep up the great work. Thanks. And that was Chad. Thank you, Chad. What a great discussion point this has turned out to be, you know, and... Uh... Thank you for adding your two cents in there as well. You know, it's it, it's as good a suggestion as any, and you, you might be right, we might all be right. It, it's it's one of those things, isn't it, you know? But um, I've really kind of enjoyed hearing different people kind of chime in on that and put my own thoughts in as well. So that's great. Thank you, Chad. Obviously, Chad maybe done a little verbal typo, I guess, with the title of that episode uh, when he called it Death's Head Revisited instead of nothing in the dark but we all got what he meant so that's okay and on the subject of planets of the apes i've really put a lot of work into that over this last week i think it took a little bit longer than i hoped for because i wanted to find the right mix of ingredients to put into it and not just have it be me kind of verbally reviewing it i wanted to add some different kind of textures to it and it's starting to come together well now and i really can't wait to record it and put it all together which is hopefully going to be happening in the next week but um you know hopefully it'll work out and it'll be something special so that is our mailbag and i just want to thank a few patrons before we go on to the next thing people who have started pledging to the twilight zone podcast to help pay the fees and and the hosting of the show and i want to thank new pledges from david k brett parent Michael Connell, Mark Ramsey. Now, Mark Ramsey is a great podcaster. If you like horror movies, if you like Psycho, if you like The Exorcist, then look for his shows Inside Psycho and Inside The Exorcist. Two really great examinations of uh, those movies and how they came to be. Presented really well, beautiful use of sound, you know, really raises the bar for what podcasts can be. So, check that out as well okay so that is hopefully the decks clear i hope i haven't missed anyone you know i tried my best to keep up on things but sometimes i do lose track a little bit with you know emails and facebook posts and uh, twitter and patreon and that kind of thing all these different things coming in but hopefully everyone has their due now what i'm going to play for you now is a new show that i'm kind of part of it's actually 
Kind of one of my old shows, but rejigged with a more rod sailing slant on it. Some of you already know that I co-host a show called The Strange and Deadly Show with my friend Chris Clayton, and that is a show about horror movies. And we've been doing that for a few years now, but I was looking for something to do within the Patreon page that had a bit of a rod sailing connection that I could do together with Chris, and we touched upon the idea of doing Night Gallery. Now, on the twilightzonepodcast.com is already a show about Night Gallery hosted by Christopher Brown. He started that when I started the Twilight Zone podcast all those many years ago, but that is a more kind of scholarly and uh, a solo show, kind of like this one where he looks at trivia, clips from it, that kind of thing. But I've always wanted to just sort of approach Night Gallery as a fan and kind of talk it through with someone. So what we've decided to do, Chris and I, is to do it in this new show, which uh, is kind of like a spin-off of the Strange and Deadly show. And we're calling it Strange and Deadly's Television Terror. And in that show, we're going to be looking at two anthology horror television shows, and they are Night Gallery and Tales from the Crypt. But we're approaching it from that kind of like two guys just, you know, watching the episodes and then talking them out. It's not going to be kind of like the trivia and all that side of things. So we recently recorded episode one, which is now up on Patreon, but I'm going to put it here too for anyone who wants to check it out. And and maybe if you enjoy it, then you will subscribe on that to get future episodes. Now, now Chris is a big horror fan. He knows his horror movies. He knows anthologies. He's, he's very much up on that, but he doesn't really know Rod Serling. And he doesn't really know Rod Sailing's work. So, you know, I thought it would be interesting because I could have went to get someone who was a big Rod Sailing fan and we would talk about it with all this sailing knowledge we have. But I thought it would really be interesting to approach Night Gallery with someone who doesn't know about Rod Sailing, who doesn't know his work and who's kind of coming to it fresh, you know, with me who is someone with a bit of Rod Sailing knowledge and him who has none. So he doesn't bring that baggage as a sailing fan, you know. To him, these are just episodes of television that he's going to watch and talk about with me and review. So hopefully if you enjoy it, it's a bi-monthly show on the Patreon page and it is at the $3 donation level. And you can subscribe at patreon.com slash Podcast. Now I'm going to be carrying on with Planet of the Apes and getting that together. And that will be our next show. So I will speak to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Night Gallery. Now that's entertainment.
Good evening and welcome to a private show discussing two television programmes broadcast here for the first time on the Patreon page for the Twilight Zone podcast. Each programme is a classic in its own way, but to do these two shows justice, I've had to merge two of the podcasts of which I am a part. The Twilight Zone podcast and The Strange and Deadly Show. Tonight, we'll capture on a canvas the first episode of this horrifying hybrid. This one we'll simply call Strange and Deadly's Television Terror. So with the strange and deadly name comes a very strange and deadly co-host, a podcast and veteran of 10 years or more, and my good friend, who have I got with me tonight? It's Christopher Clayton. Hello, buddy. Hello, Chris. So here we are in our new show. It's essentially the strange and deadly show, but we're sort of switching up the format with a new topic, something that we're both quite excited about. So just quickly before we dig into it, I I thought maybe we'll just... We touched upon this in our little intro show, but what are you looking forward to? What are you hoping to get out of this show? Well, you know, we're going to be exploring two shows here that ran for quite a long time, especially Tales from the Crypts. It's Mm. a show that ran for seven seasons, so you've got many years' worth of shows there, all sorts of different stories. I suppose the latter point is what I'm looking forward to the most, really, delving into a different story each time around, Mm -hmm. several different stories in the case of Night Gallery, and... You know, sort of exploring, seeing different actors, you know, some of them prestige actors, certainly. Um, Just seeing a very different side of things than we normally see. You know, when we do the Strange and Deadly show, we're doing a double bill of films. So it's two films that, you know, they tend to be quite rigid in their story, whereas here there's room for all sorts of different stories, tales, characters. So I think that's what I'm looking forward to the most. Certainly on the night gallery side of things, this is a show I've never been exposed to before. I really know nothing about. Uh So that for me is, is a real, an exploration of something I've been curious about. The Twilight Zone itself is something that's been on my list for quite a long time, Mm -hmm. as you well know, you know, one of those, the list that you have in your, the mental list that you keep in your head where you go, okay, one day I'm going to really sit down and go through that. I'm going to marathon it and, just hasn't happened yet night gallery this is kind of my i suppose my introduction to the world of rod serling so on that side of it tales from the crypt i'm I'm familiar with there's a lot of it i haven't seen the same for you i'm sure yeah uh but night gallery completely new to me so i feel like from my and i I suppose i'm saying this from my perspective perhaps we can hear yours that's what i feel i'm getting out of it an exploration of, of things that i haven't really seen before I think for me, because I spend so much time in the Twilight Zone, uh, I often do neglect Rod Serling's other work. And, you know, this is a big one in a way. And like I said in that little intro we did, it is seen as the the sort of lesser of the two. So I think what I'm looking forward to, I have been exposed to some of Night Gallery before. Um, I watched along to a degree when Christopher Brown did the Night Gallery podcast. But I don't know it as intimately as I know the Twilight Zone. And I'm looking for that that sailing stamp, you know. Mm. Um, I, I'll get into the sort of a little bit of a history of it in a moment. But I'm looking to see, does Rod Sailing bring that um, quality that of writing that he did in the Twilight Zone where he really tells us something about our lives and how we live? Can he bring that to a horror show? That's going to be an interesting thing. And with Tales from the Crypt, I guess I'm looking forward to seeing 
you know, is that just a thriller week? Or does that have any sort of levels to it as well? You know, there's nothing wrong with being quite a surface show that's all about the sort of the thrills and the chills. But I'm looking forward to seeing is there more substance to that as well. But I think what you're going to find with Tales especially is that it there's there's quite a few stories in there of things being turned around on the protagonist. So, mm. you know, there are th- they want something, they desire something, and then they might get what they desire, but then find out that actually they didn't really want it in the first place and it kind of comes back around on them. So I think there are levels to it. It, it is trashier. Then, uh-huh. I mean, look, I've only seen this first episode of, of Night Gary the Pilot that we're going to talk about in a minute, so I don't know how it's going to pan out. But certainly Tales is a trashier show in general, but there's a lot of really, really famous actors, you know, famous actors of the 80s in particular, I suppose. But, you know, going back going back further than that, who, you know, are very well-known actors and, and so bring a level of gravitas to them. So I think you're going to be surprised by the depth of some of the stories, but some of them will also be quite fun and trashy at the same time. And I think Night Gallery, even from, you know, a, a cursory glance at it, when Rod Serling comes on, uh, you can tell that there's a classiness to it. There's uh-huh. a classiness that he brings to it and an intelligence that he brings to it that I'm really looking forward to getting into. They're quite different shows, I think. But, you know, the anthology aspect of it, I think they, they link together quite well at the same time. Well, that juxtaposition, I think, is going to be really quite interesting. So why don't we start out? I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but why don't we start out with a little history of the Night Gallery? Good evening. And welcome to a private showing of three paintings displayed here for the first time. Each is a collector's item in its own way. Not because of any special artistic quality, but because each captures on a canvas, suspends in time and space, a frozen moment of a nightmare. Our initial offering, a small Gothic item in blacks and greys, a piece of the past known as the family crypt. This one we call simply the cemetery. Offered to you now, six feet of earth and all that it contains. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Night Gallery. So the story of Night Gallery begins in 1964 when the Twilight Zone was cancelled and there was talk of taking the show to another network. Now the Twilight Zone, although it's sort of well-revered now, and it was at the time, it often struggled to really get renewed each year and its luck ran out. Now, the only problem was that CBS owned the rights to the name Twilight Zone and the president of ABC, who were interested in the show, suggested a change of title to Witches, Warlocks and Werewolves, <laughs> which, uh, which was the name of an anthology book that Rod Serling had edited in 1963. So the name suggested a more horror-centric B-movie type of approach, so Sailing suggested the title Rod Sailing's Wax Museum, and in each episode, him acting as host would uncover a wax exhibit and tell the audience its story, but ABC stuck to their guns, and that was the end of that. Now, in 1967, three novellas were written by Rod Sailing and released under the title the season to be wary, and then included the stories The Escape Route, Colour Scheme, and Eyes. Now, although the sales weren't strong on that book, it seemed to focus sailing into a more gothic horror frame of mind, and here the idea for the Night Gallery was born. 
But despite Sailing being a household name from the Twilight Zone, in the late 60s the anthology series as a television format was starting to wind down and was seen by some as old-fashioned. And when Sailing left a meeting with Universal, which he went to to discuss producing the new series, he wrote to his colleague Bill Sackheim, and in that correspondence he wrote, I walked away with the impression that I'm in trouble once they start shooting. Now this statement was to become quite prophetic as Sailing, having been working hard on the Twilight Zone for five years, never had the control that he had with that show, with Night Gallery. Now Night Gallery was greenlit at Universal for a TV movie stroke pilot and this was actually a big hit. But the producer Sailing was working with, Bill Sackheim, didn't want to commit to a series, and while Sailing wanted a series, he didn't want the same executive control as he had with The Twilight Zone. He said he was in his 40s now, he didn't want to be on set each and every day, all the time. So he wanted to be involved, but not to the same degree. So when the series was commissioned, Sackheim left and was replaced by a man who will come up quite a bit when we go through the series, and his name was Jack Laird, a man whose vision for the show often clashed with sailings. But that's a story for another day. So in this one, Chris, you know, sailing really had the reins on the Twilight Zone, and the whole point of that show was to be able to tell stories with a, a real amount of social commentary hiding mm. in plain sight, if you like. So we could tell stories about racism, about, you know, all kinds of social things and disguise them as science fiction. But it seemed that by the end of it, the fight had kind of been took out of him. So when it came to Night Gallery, he didn't really want that level of control where he was just there day in, day out. So he kind of put a bit more faith in the studio to kind of carry it and he would write some of them and present the show. But ultimately, in a sense, that was his downfall. But so, you know, I will bring that up as we go through the episodes, but that's a, a kind of potted history of the Night Gallery, if you like. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, how long did he did he do the Twilight Zone show for? Well, it was on for five seasons, but, you know, he he had a, a really great producer working with him for a lot of that who they saw eye to eye on everything. He had control over it. You know, the network would give him notes and sometimes he would act on them. Sometimes he'd be like, no. But, you know, they call him the angry young man of, of television. And <laughs> I don't necessarily believe that's true. I don't get that anger as such, but he he was very driven. But I think by the end of it, a, a bit of the fight had gone out of him, you know. I think there are some people who are just naturally very creative. Mm. He obviously sounds like somebody who's like that. And, you know, it seems like he wanted to kind of imprint his vision on the Twilight Zone. And also working on a TV show, it sounds like hard work. Mm. And you've got five seasons worth there. And you're very creatively involved, as he seemed to be. I don't blame him, really, for feeling like, OK, I kind of want to do this other thing now and explore different kinds of stories. But I don't necessarily want to be quite as hands-on. And then... You were talking there about the producer, what was his name, Jack Laird? Jack Laird, yeah. Uh -huh. Jack Laird. And 
there being a conflicting vision there. It may be one of those things where you sort of start something up and say, okay, well, look, you know, you can kind of have the reins of this a bit. I'll still be involved. And then you see what's what's coming out of it and you go, well, actually, I kind of want it to be this way. You can never really completely leave it alone. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in, in the, in fact, I, I'm actually considering getting a book on Rod Serling ah. uh, just to help this, you know, I, I don't know how much it will play into the reviewing of Night Gallery and the episodes of it. But I would like to learn more about the man because he sounds like he's very driven. Uh-huh. It sounds like he knows what he wants. He probably was a bit bossy, um, but you can tell me whether that's true or not. That's the impression I get, that he was maybe a little bit bossy in the way that he did things. But some of the best things that have ever been made have had somebody behind it who's a bit of a powerhouse, and it sounds like he was very much that. But you get to a certain point in life as well where you think okay, I kind of want to be a bit more hands-off here because you only have one life mm-hmm. uh, and you sort of need to live it at some point. And even though the Twilight Zone, as you say, you know, it probably didn't have the reverence that it has now. I mean, now, it's hard to imagine a world without the Twilight Zone now. Yeah. Even yeah. if you're not a big fan of it or you don't know much about it, like like myself, um, you know that it exists and you know that it's really, really important. Uh, what an interesting man. What an interesting man. I think, uh, I, I can see why you might think bossy, but I, I would think more just... Um a very clear vision of, of how right. he wanted things. Now, from what I've read, he didn't like his dialogue to be changed, and that'll come up when we talk about eyes. But in other senses, he was a great collaborator. He he was always happy for a director to have their vision and that kind of thing. But you're, you're absolutely right. You know, you get to an age, and I think it's the same, you know, you see it with rock musicians or musicians of any kind really where their best work is sometimes in their early days isn't it when they really have that drive and then they start to release these rubbish albums later and and that's (laughs) obviously not to say night gallery is rubbish but you can really understand him wanting to take his foot off the pedal a bit and it's it's kind of the same as like you know chris brown did the night gallery podcast where he uh done it solo and had clips and trivia and that kind of thing but, you know, he's done that. So I just want to talk about it with you and the audience yeah. here on, on Patreon. So, you know, I, I'm taking a bit more of a laid-back approach to it with this than I do with the Twilight Zone, where I, I kind of do more of the heavy lifting. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're interested in him. That's, that's always a good sign. So that's uh, that's really encouraging. Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on one of the points you, you, you made there, uh, yeah, Chris Brown's podcast was very much about really delving into the history of the show and delving mm. into each episode with trivia and, like you say, clips and all the rest of it. This is more of a discussion-based podcast where it's just, you know, us, if you know us from our other podcasts that we do together, we like to have a good discussion. This one's a little bit different because we're, you know, we're going to keep it a bit more family-friendly and a bit snappier, but the, the heart of it really is just us talking about it and um, talking about these episodes. So, yeah, it, it's, it's different in in that way mm-hmm. but uh, yeah i get it man I, I totally get it of wanting to just to, to not always have to because you and i are pretty you know we're perfectionists aren't we in a lot mm. of ways when we do podcasts you know when we were we were doing the uh, lost in the omniverse which is our superhero show we did the patreon for that and we were releasing bonus episodes. You know, most people would just throw the bonus episode out there with sort of minimal <laughs> editing and everything. We were editing it like a main show, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because you want to sort of put quality on it. So it's nice in a way. You know, when you're presenting Night Gallery to me, I get to sort of step back a bit. And then when I present Tales from You, you get to step back and just sort of enjoy the discussion of it. So that's what that's what we have in common. If we have anything in common with Rod Surly, I think you probably have more in common with him than I do. Um <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it will be that. <laughs> good, good. Okay, well, why don't we get into the night gallery then? And uh, I'm going to present to you this first episode, Chris. It's a, it's a kind of movie, television movie stroke pilot episode. So it's mm. a bit longer than usual one. I think they ran maybe like an hour or something in the regular episodes, but this one is more like an hour and a half. So should we get going? Definitely, let's do it. Okay, so let's talk about the first story in the pilot called The Cemetery. Well, as I breathe and live, if it isn't Osmond Portafoy. Osmond Portafoy. If there's nothing else, sir, I thought I'd lock up and retire. Yeah, that is your life, isn't it, Portafoy? Locking up and retiring. <laughs> you know, to my dying day, I'm going to carry a picture of you walk through life, you know, stiff back, straight legged carrying a tray and towels over your arm and have a proven look in your eye. <laughs> hey, you know that look. Now, don't you, Portafoy? Yeah, how shall I describe it? Ah, yeah. Like a, <laughs> like a bank manager finding an incorrect balance. First broadcast on November 8, 1969, written by Rod Serling and directed by Boris Segal. William Hendricks is a wealthy recluse whose health is failing him, with only his faithful butler, Portafoy, we're going to hear that name a few times, to look after <laughs> him. He has little left in life to enjoy, but he still tries to continue with his lifelong passion of painting with the help of Portafoy. His nephew, Jeremy Evans, a self-proclaimed black sheep of the family, comes to his uncle's house and doesn't try to disguise the fact that he's here to collect his inheritance when his uncle passes away. While Portafoy isn't around, knowing that Hendrix is particularly vulnerable to the cold, Jeremy opens the window in his bedroom and places his uncle in front of it, causing his condition to worsen, and he dies soon after. Although he disapproves of Jeremy, Portafoy must stay on as a butler of the house, seemingly to supplement his meagre allowance that Hendrix has left him in his will. Now with his uncle's fortune and estate, Jeremy is the lord of the manor and lives his life accordingly, but he begins to notice that a painting in the hallway that shows the house and the family cemetery changes every day and seems to be indicating that his uncle is going to rise from the grave to exact his revenge. So, before we get into the story, Chris, because it's not something that really happens on television these days unless you look at something like Lemony Snicket on uh, on Netflix. Mm. Here we have this man, and you've spoke about him briefly, Rod Sailing, coming up and telling you a little bit about this story that he's going to present. First impressions of this kind of introduction, because obviously it's it's something that I come across every every episode of The Twilight Zone, but what do you think? Yeah, I really enjoy this, I have to say. I mean, I know a little bit about Rod Sailing, and I've seen him before, so it's not like I haven't seen him intro something before, but... Mm -hmm. uh, there's just something brilliant about him coming in, explaining what's not explaining what's going to happen, but sort of introducing us to to what what lies ahead. And he's a classically sort of a classy looking man. Mm. Um, you know, it presents the painting there, takes the uh, you know the uh, the cloth off of it, and. And there it is, and we, we sort of move into the painting, and there's the story. I really enjoy this. I really enjoy this aspect of it. I love a horror host anyway, and this is basically, essentially, he's a prototype horror host, right? Mm. 
So it, it's a, uh, yeah, I find that really interesting. It, it, very different to, you know, when I was growing up, I was seeing Elvira in Mistress of the Dark and people <laughs> like that. And Rod Serling's quite different to her. But it, uh, yeah, though I really enjoy this aspect of it. You know, the moment I saw this, I was like, okay, I'm looking forward to seeing him every episode. It's not something that, I don't know, is, is there anybody out there who feels that he's getting in the way of the story? I don't know. For me, it works. Obviously, I, I love it too. This is a bit of an older Rod Sailing, a bit more lines in his face. He's in colour now. But you're right, he's, he's got that class about him, that really distinctive voice, and he talks like in a very unique sort of beat powered style you know that he has a rhythm to his speech like no one else Mm. i always talk about in the twilight zone that in that he is like this being from the twilight zone the this sort of emissary this god this guide this something or other he's the man who knows all the secrets and he's going to let us have a little glimpse of them as well so you know i I love this stuff I, i eat it up but you know, he, he shows us this painting and then we go to our first story. Now, the setup is we have this old man and he's clearly had maybe a stroke or, or something like that. Um, and he's being looked after by his butler, Portafoy. So we, we've got a really great cast here, I think, to start with. We've got Ozzy Davis, who, you know, is pretty much great in everything he does. Yeah. But um then we have the arrival of Roddy McDowell. Now, Roddy McDowell's a bit of a... In a sense, he's sort of sailing royalty. He was in the Twilight Zone. He's in this. He's He will then go on to be in Planet of the Apes, which was written by Rod Sailing. So he's kind of Twilight Zone royalty. Um, and he turns up and he has quite a distinctive personality doesn't he (laughs) oh boy does he arrive tom he (laughs) arrives uh yeah wow this is a i mean a lot of this is kind of it is strung around Roddy mcdowell's neck through a lot of it he has to carry it he's certainly the one who spits out the most dialogue in it Mm. and yeah he's sort of horribly effervescent in a in a hugely arrogant way. He's not a very nice man at all, is he, Tom? No. Or Roddy McDowell. Jeremy, I believe, was his character's name. That's right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and he, but he arrives, and boy, does he arrive. I mean, he is chewing up scenery left, right, and centre. He practically ate the cameraman, Tom. I mean, he <laughs> is... He's going for it. But in a way that's really sort of... I couldn't quite take my eyes off him yeah. because he's going sort of a mile a minute. You know, of course, there's the... <laughs> It's certainly, I don't know if it's infamous to the people who've seen this show, but it's infamous to me. Potify? <laughs> uh, he, he practically says it every line, every other line. Yeah. Um, the, that's the, the uh, name of um, Ozzy Davis's character. And uh, yeah, wow, he comes in and kind of steals the show, doesn't he? He does. There's one point where he says Portafoy twice in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, so Portafoy, blah 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 Portafoy, you know. <laughs> yeah. I want I do wonder whether it was in the script or not, or whether this is something he's just brought to it, because he just really kinda goes for it. He does chew up the scenery, but he, I think he's so great to watch in it. Because you 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 do love him and hate him at the same time. You hate him for what he's doing, but you love him because it's Roddy McDowell just seemingly having a blast with what he's doing. Well, I'm a big fan of Roddy McDowell anyway. Mm. So for me, it was it was strange because there is a duality when I'm watching it in that I, I really don't like this character. He's a really <sighs> horrible, sleazy sort of 
all a rat. He's a rat, Tom, uh, coming in there trying to take advantage of this this poor man. But at the same time, it's Roddy McDowell, and he and he keeps saying Portafoil all the time, and I can't help but <laughs> but I can't help but you know I find him very magnetic anyway. Yeah, Roddy McDowell, and and even you know even under the makeup for when he in Planet of the Apes and the movies he was in. Um, I've, I've always found him to be quite a magnetic presence and very much so here. This is very much his show, but that's not to, to take away from the other elements around him. I mean, he's certainly the the big antagonist here. It's interesting to have a villain who's this sort of... Um, all, he, all he cares about is money mm. at the end of the day. That's all he cares about is money. Doesn't care about his his uncle at all. All he cares about is money. So it's interesting. A villainous character with charm, which yeah. is... You know, some of the best villains have that, don't they? We've got three stories to get through here, so we won't spend a huge amount of time on each one, but we'll we'll yeah. give each one its due. But I think what's interesting is that he doesn't come in and try and sort of win anyone over. He doesn't put on a performance to try and say, oh, I'm really a nice guy, but actually I want to kill my uncle and, and, and get his money kind of thing. I mean, he keeps the fact that he's going to kill his uncle under his hat, but he's unabashedly saying, I'm only here for the money, you know. Mm. That, that's what I'm here for. You know, it's funny, something's just sprung to mind, a connection between these two shows, because when I used to work in New York when I was younger, on this one occasion, I, I can't remember why, but I ran out of the restaurant that I was working in, I had to be somewhere or something, and I legged it out the door, and I ran past this guy. And when I went back, you know, 20 minutes later or whatever, one of the staff said to me, do you, do you realise who you just ran past? And I was like, no. And they said it was Roddy McDowell because he, he lived in that town. And I was like, oh, man, I missed Roddy McDowell. You know, I, I, want, <laughs> I would have at least said hello to him, you know. So, uh, But there's actually a connection there with the, the next show we're going to talk about, but I'll get to that later. Interesting, interesting. Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so he kills his uncle. He wheels him over to the window and he ends up. Uh, passing away so Portfoy uh, you would think that he would leave but when he finds out that he's only getting $80 a month he he decides he's going to stay and there's a painting on the wall of the house and the family cemetery that is nearby and as Jeremy's sort of gallivanting around with his women and drinking his brandy he notices that it's starting to change on a daily basis so Knowing what you know about the show, obviously I'd seen this before, but what what are your thoughts at this point? It's interesting. You know, I had heard that Night Gallery was a show that was chiefly about supernatural horror. Mm. So I had it in my mind that this was going to be something that was supernatural based. And we'll talk about the conclusion of it in, in just a moment. But I, 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 got the, to, I got to grips with it fairly quickly and realised that it was... This was about seeing a man, an incredibly arrogant, egotistical man who only cares about one thing, being slowly driven out of his mind. Yeah. And that is one of the things, you know, it's it's kind of a strange, I suppose a strange comparison to make, but it's one of the reasons why I love Evil Dead 2, for example, is that you get a character like, you know, Bruce Campbell plays Ash in it, just going out of his mind. Mm -hmm. Now, he's, he's going, he's sort of uh, heading towards lunacy in that film. Roddy McDowell kind of going along the same lines, not as wacky, but I, I enjoy seeing, <laughs> you know, the effervescent, villainous Roddy McDowell character, Jeremy here, looking at that painting, being confused by it, 
looking at it again, mm-hmm. wondering what the hell is going on. And very quickly in his in his own mind, coming up with the conclusion that his uncle is in fact coming back to get him. Yeah. Uh, so a, a story of revenge, which is in a lot of these kinds of stories, uh, and it's revenge seems to be a theme of a lot of anthology stories. I think definitely, definitely. Now, the thing is, we find out that it's a a plot by Portafoy that he is changing the painting on the wall, you know, at at various intervals. So it looks like the old man is coming back to get him. Now, this obviously presents quite a big plot hole, really. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about this one, Tom. It's, in terms of the that, that plot point, it's, it's uh, oh boy, you would have to... Yeah. You would have to do it well. <laughs> I mean, just, just to make it clear what we're talking about, you can go with it for a while, but then there's a point where Roddy McDowell, he's really cracking up, and he gets on the phone, he's trying to call the police or whoever, and the painting literally changes while he's sat there. So yeah. Portafoy would have needed to swing in there like a ninja <laughs> or <laughs> or have someone do it like a ninja and change that painting while he's sat there. I think it's something that they could have quite easily worked around if he'd have just went in the next room to use the phone or something and came back sure. and the painting had changed. So quite why they've done it that way, I guess maybe for effect, but it is a bit of a, a plot hole, isn't it? I'm not 100% sure about this because I've only seen the episode once, but I'm pretty sure there's one point where he looks at the painting, looks away from it and looks back and there's already been a change. So I'd, how would he have changed the picture within sort of three or four seconds? I, I I might be wrong about that, but I'm I'm pretty sure there is a point where he kind of looks at it, looks away, looks back, and there's all, there's been another change since he last looked at it. But the good thing about this this particular uh, story is that I actually don't mind that much, right? Because I'm enjoying the conceit of it, which is just a, a quite a, a, quite a horrible, nasty man getting his comeuppance and go, going out of his mind in the process. You know, the conclusion of it, the fact that. You know, he gets scared out of his mind so much that he ends up falling down this a, a fairly small flight of stairs mm-hmm. and breaks his neck. The fact that he died at the bottom of it, um, it's its all convenience, isn't it, really, at the end of the day? The story ends in a very convenient way for old Ossie Davis. But I do, I have to say, I, I didn't mind that much that there was a, a gaping plot hole in the way, the, the actual device of how they got it done. It, um, it's problematic if you look at it. Um, objectively and look at it critically but it I, don't, I didn't mind it I have to say I, I didn't mind I was just enjoying the conceit of it good well I'm, I'm glad now the the ending is quite interesting because our, so we're on Portfolio's side for most of this but it seems that once he has executed this plan and you know to be fair I don't think we mind that much <laughs> you know what I mean that he has sort of done this to Jeremy we're, we're alright with it in the realms of fiction uh, that this has happened, and he's going to inherit the money and the old man's estate. But it seems that once he knows that, he changes his personality and it becomes quite rude in his own way as well, which which yeah. is a bit unfortunate. And then and then we get this ending, don't we? Yeah, which is, I mean, because we we spend most of the episode on, on as you say, on Potiphar's side, mm-hmm. and so we. It is. It's quite strange, isn't it? At the end of it, to see the personality change. All of a sudden, he's wearing that that bright pink um, gown. <laughs> he's you know <laughs> walking around. He's he's inherited money, so he's happy about that. But yeah, we get 
the, that aspect of supernatural horror coming in where he looks at the painting on the wall and it's changing, Tom. Mm. And it looks like old Jeremy's coming back from the dead. Now, I, I want to ask you, is that what we're meant to to believe at the end of it? That actually, yes, there is something supernatural going on within that cemetery. I think so. It's a bit of a well-worn trope probably now, you know, setting something up to look supernatural and then that there is something supernatural. Or you you could say that maybe Portafoy's gone mad or something like that. Mm. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I think that that is the kicker. That's the twist, that something supernatural does happen. Uh, and old Portafoy gets his comeuppance as well. But, you know, it's interesting... I think with this one, you know, a lot of Rod Sailing's work just, it does have subtext and lessons and this, that and the other. But I think this is him just trying to tell a scary yarn, a, a bit of a creepy story. And I think for the most part, it, you know, it works. Obviously, you and I are seasoned horror fans. We don't get scared easily. <laughs> but no. um, but as, as a bit of a televisual thrill, I, I think this is this is a good start. I agree. And Roddy McDowell is is the MVP in this one. You know, mm -hmm. I just couldn't get over how ridiculous he was. The fact that he kept saying, Potify, <laughs> the fact that he is, yeah, a real magnetism with him in this. Um, and I think he really sells it. He sells the, the madness quite well. And yeah, like we say, a bit weak in terms of what the actual twist of the story is. But overall, I really enjoyed this. Good. Okay, well, we've got three to get through. So let's get on to our second one, which is the story Eyes. You must understand something, Miss Medlow. In the first place, the best you could expect on assuming the transplanting of the central optic nerve was successful would be, well, roughly 11 to 13 hours of sight, no more. Then you'd be blind again. And then, of course, there's that other insurmountable obstacle. What is the insurmountable obstacle? To put it simply, Miss Menlow, you need a donor, someone who'd be willing to part with his sight for the rest of his life to give you roughly 12 hours of it. I don't believe there's such a person around. Nonsense, Doctor. Everyone has a price. For their eyes? I seriously doubt that. Well, I tell you wrong. My lawyer has found such a person for me. He represented him in a criminal case some time ago. The man needs the money desperately. He's agreed to become the donor and part with his eyes for a sum of cash. How much cash? $9,000. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Steven Spielberg. Never heard of him again. Mm, no. No. So Claudio Menlo is a 54-year-old millionaire who lives alone in a splendid penthouse above New York. Blind from birth, Claudia carries an inner rage at the misfortune of her situation. Instead of channeling this into something positive, she uses her wealth to amass an art collection in case the day comes when her sight can be returned. That becomes a possibility if she can only receive a groundbreaking optic nerve transplant. The only drawbacks are that she will only see for 12 hours, and also that the donor of the optic nerve must be alive. But her physician, Dr. Heatherton, refuses to carry out the surgery under circumstances that would cause the donor to be left sightless. But we also discover that Menlo has a talent for exploiting people, whether it's through the dirt she can dig up on Dr. Heatherton or the gambling debt she promises to pay off for the hapless Sidney Resnick, who agrees to give up his sight for a measly $9,000. 
Menlo receives the surgery, but when the moment comes for her to see the well for the first time, things don't quite go to plan. So, here we have Steven Spielberg. Now, I think, he, although he directed some shorts and student films and that kind of thing, I think this was his first actual television directing job. So, you know, I, I think when you start, when you hear that, and you know it's really early Spielberg, you kind of start to watch it, don't you? Thinking, hmm, can I really see, can I see what, you know, he's going to become here, don't you? Absolutely. It's, it's a funny thing. Again, I try to go into, normally I don't do this, but I try to go into Night Gallery knowing as little as possible about it other than some very basic information because mm. I wanted to kind of view it as, you know, as somebody who might have discovered it watching the TV back then. Yeah. Um, and the moment I saw directed by Stefan Spalbarg <sighs> on there, I immediately thought, ooh, is this his first job? Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's certainly a very early one. I knew that this was you know, sort of early 70s, late 60s. So I knew that this was pre-Jaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Can you imagine that in, in the space of, what, if this was 69, Jaws was 74, wow. I think? So we're talking about within the space of five years, the man created the Hollywood blockbuster as we know it today. And it's funny to think that this is where he, he kind of started. So, yeah, you do sort of start to start to look at it and think, okay, now I'm now I'm watching this you know, primarily because of the story, but also because I kind of want to see if there are any hallmarks of the Steven Spielberg directing style that we've kind of taken to Jaws and then Indiana Jones and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and yeah, an interesting story for Steven Spielberg to tackle, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting with a couple of, of great actors in it, especially Joan Crawford, who we'll talk about in just a moment. But yeah, it, as far as directing, as far as Steven Spielberg, I was very surprised to see that he would do a story like this. And it does go to show that he did always have an eye for thrillers, mm-hmm. I think, even though he's known for sort of making the big blockbuster family film, you know, his latest film, Ready Player One. is like, it's hard. Can you imagine that this is, you know, 1969, he makes this, flash forward to 2018 and he's releasing, you know, Ready Player One. It's like, it's it's an amazing, isn't it, what can happen to somebody in their career? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we saw it a lot in The Twilight Zone as well. And it's what I love about the Twilight Zone and Night Gallery when you see, whether it's behind the camera or in front of it, when you see these people who would go on to bigger and better, well, not necessarily better, but bigger things or other things or things that will make them more famous. And we see it a lot in the Twilight Zone, people like Leonard Nimoy in a small little bit part before he became Spock, that kind of thing. So there's there's always going to be that, that person mm. who sort of gets their start and because anthologies go through so many people there's always a good amount of these kind of things going on so this is our setup and again we won't spend a huge amount of time on it because we've you know we've got three stories to get through but the setup is we have this lady Menlo who is this millionaire who hasn't uh, been able to see since she was born but people who are sightless do amazing things and sometimes put the rest of us to shame with their drive, what they're able to accomplish uh, in that way. And it seems that she has accomplished a lot, unless she was born into money, I don't know. But, you know, she she's let that sort of affect her in such a negative way that she seems to be just a ball of hate, doesn't she? A ball of rage. She's angry at the world for what's happened to her. And obviously the actor who's playing her 
is Joan Crawford. So we've got this really interesting meeting of the new Spielberg with the veteran Joan Crawford. He must have been so nervous coming into this. Absolutely, because Joan Crawford, you know, f- from memory was could be quite demanding, right? Mm. So it's interesting, new Hollywood meeting old Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Hollywood legend is what she is. And yeah, the carrots are... You know, parallels with the last story in that it's somebody who desires something so so much that they're willing to do anything to get it, and then they find out that actually maybe it's not something they wanted at the end of the day because it can only bring bad luck with it. You know, it's a bit like it's a bit like wishing, you know, wishing making a wish that that has dire consequences, but it allows mm-hmm. you to have a vast sum of money for a period of time to do a certain thing that you really want to do, but at the end of it. You know, a, a good th- would a good good things come bad things sometimes, and this story is another great example of that. There's this woman here who's blind. She has this dog. I mean, there are three sort of central characters in here. There's her. There's the doctor, and then there's the guy who's going to be the donor, who we'll get to in a moment. Okay, so the conceit of it is that you know she wants to have her sight back. And the doctor says, to her, well, look, OK, I can I've got this method of doing it. I don't want to do it, though, because you will only have if I do this method um, involving optic nerves and, and, you know, taking eyes from somebody else, you'll only have 12 hours of it. So I'm not going to, you know, consent to giving you somebody else's sight that they could use for the rest of their life. Why would I do that? So, mm. you know, Tom, wh- what does she do here to make him uh, to convince him to do the operation? Well, that this is her talent. She seems to be able to hone in on people's weaknesses or the dirt that she can dig up on them and use that against them. She's a she's a manipulator. Yeah. And there's there's a great book. It's like the Bible of the Night Gallery, and it's called Rod Sailing's Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, and it's by uh, TV historian Scott Skelton and Jim Benson. You mentioned before that Crawford could be quite a handful, and you're absolutely right from what they wrote in this book. Basically, what they say is she she was furious that this 22-year-old director, Steven Spielberg, had been given the job um, to direct this episode. But although that was her true feelings, she tried to also be a bit of a friend to him. Right. So th- it, it, they had a relationship on two levels where... They met and she was like, you know, I know you're only new, but I've got a bit of clout. I'm going to be a friend to you. If you've got any trouble with the studio, you let me know and um, I will take care of it for you. Now, she confided in him about Rod Serling's dialogue. She's like, people just don't talk that way. And as we go through this, I think you'll start to pick up on Rod Serling's dialogue because although it can be incredibly poetic... Like, I've tried to read some of his, like, excerpts of his stories on the Twilight Zone podcast. And you end up tripping over your words because it's it's wonderful, it's poetic, it has this beat poetry kind of um, <laughs> aspect to it. But it, it can be incredibly hard to say sometimes, so... Yeah, nobody talks like that. Yeah, um, so I can kind of see where she's coming from. So she's confiding that in Spielberg, but then she's going to sailing saying who's this kid directing this show? (laughs) So she's now here herself. She comes on set with an entourage with a case of vodka and a load of diet Coke. And she's getting, you know, drunk on vodka in their dressing room all the time. (laughs) Spielberg's running around trying to get her on set, trying to do what he can without her, uh, that kind of thing. So it was an incredibly stressful 
time for Spielberg doing this episode. So the the, the story of it is in the book and it, it really is quite interesting. Well, I wrote down the name of the book there because I'm really interested in reading more about that story. I have to say I'm not surprised to hear it because uh-huh. I, you can just sort of tell, you know, Steven Spielberg, it's probably his first... You know, his first big proper directorial job. And you've got Joan Crawford there, who's infamous, who has terrific presence on screen. No doubt Mm. about it at all. And that voice and, you know, there's a reason why she was so famous. But, yeah, I can imagine she was a real handful. That's no surprise at all. But that sounds like a wonderful anecdote. He probably looks, I would imagine, Stephen, based on, you know, with all the stuff he's accomplished over the years, he probably looks back on it sort of quite fondly, really. Probably made him a better director at the end of the day. So we meet Sidney and we we find out a bit of his story. And, And this is Tom Bosley, very famous actor as well. And we find out why he is willing to give up his sight. And at the conclusion, Menlo gets the surgery. And when the time comes to take off the bandages, there's a blackout. Yeah. I kind of feel that the way this is handled, in a similar way to the first one, it is a little bit of a plot hole. Yes. So I can I can forgive this one a little bit more, maybe. But basically, when she gets her sight back, there's a blackout. Now, this is very Twilight Zone-esque in, a, in its sort of poetry. She thinks that her sight only lasts for seconds. She sees the chandelier, and then it goes black. Even when all lights go off, yes, it can be incredibly dark, but you still have starlight, moonlight, that kind of thing. I think my only thought is maybe... It, she doesn't have full sight, so maybe it is a little dimmer, so she can't really see those things. I mean, what what do you think of any of this? Yeah, if I was going to try to excuse it, I'd probably go along with the angle you've, you've presented there, is that perhaps her eyes just weren't fully used to the light because she's never... as far, Was she blind from birth, I think? Yeah. So yeah. she's not used to, to, to processing light in, in any way. Um, so it could possibly be that, at the end of the day, it, what it ultimately comes down to is it's just a very convenient kind of twist in the plot really very mm-hmm. very convenient it's not often that just as you're about to see for the very first time there's a a city-wide <laughs> blackout and you can't see you know the shapes of anything in your own home or whatever but yeah. i have to say that i think that yes again a, a similar conceit to, to in the last story in that you know th- the tables are turned here in a, in a, a bit of a, a too convenient way but i think this is crueler mm. than that because it, it it's somebody who is not very nice, not a very nice person who is suddenly plunged into despair because they had a, a glimmer of hope that's now disappeared. And I think I found it quite sad, even though I don't really feel sorry for the character because she she's not very nice and she you know she had to use blackmail to get the doctor to even do the operation. You know, I felt sorry for Tom Bosley's character because he's a bit of a sad sack and doesn't mm-hmm. really you know he sort of laments the fact that he's going to lose his sight that he will. You know, he'll probably cut his throat. I mean, it's quite dark, really, when you think about it. Um, He'll probably cut his throat after a couple of weeks when he sat and thought about it and he can't see anymore. Given to this woman, just so she can have 12 hours worth of sight, um, it's it's a very selfish thing. But then when she's wandering around in the dark, completely lost all of a sudden, even though she's lived her whole life in darkness, but because she had a glimmer of hope there, all of a sudden it feels like she's truly plunged into darkness. I really found that to be quite a sort of dark and and cruel twist, you know, Mm -hmm. and I felt a bit sorry for her. And I think that's that's the magic of this particular story is that you can kind of feel sorry for somebody who's otherwise not very nice, who's a, a cruel manipulator. I think really... There's a moment of beauty here where she she wakes up 
and the 12 hours are nearly up and she sees the sun for the very first time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing, but taken away from her all too soon. And I can imagine for many, you know, somebody who's blind to see something like that, whether you th- they're a good person or not, um, to see something that beautiful for the very first time and then to have it taken away from you would be, it's a very cruel move, I think. It's it's a funny one, really, because this is a very Twilight Zone-esque ending, I think. Mm. There's always a sort of dark irony to it, and what people tend to put out into the world will often come back on them. And like you said, that's not that's not necessarily a Twilight Zone thing, because I think we'll probably see that a lot in Tales from the Crypt as well. But it was very much present in a lot of Twilight Zone episodes that if, if this is what you put out into the world, then this is what's going to come back to you. Mm. And, you know, she's made Tom Bosley's life dark, and so she's not been able to benefit from the the light that his eyes would have given her. But the thing with the Twilight Zone is, although it's not explicitly said that the Twilight Zone is some sort of godlike force or anything, it it is a kind of invisible presence in a way, like that you feel that something's pulling the strings in the Twilight Zone. Mm. That there is this sort of either godlike or, or something who's who's doing it and it's i think it's clearly the way i view it and i know a lot of the listeners view it so whenever something like this happens you think well this is the twilight zone kind of evening things up so without it being the twilight zone it's just a sort of ironic ending because you don't get that same feeling that something's pulling the string so it's really quite interesting but I, I do think it's a, a really solid story as well I, I really like this one too I like that I like that as a concept the idea that there is actually this invisible presence in the world that mm-hmm. is kind of you know okay you've had your fun but come back now because there's there's a consequence to this and I like that idea yeah I mean here it's just kind of a a bitter ending for this woman mm-hmm. who kind of gets what she deserves really at the end. I don't know if she deserved to die, but certainly she deserved to be, you know, in misery. And of course, uh, as we've not said, she kind of, she's so saddened by the loss of her sight again, just after she's seen the sun that she heads towards the balcony and kind of goes through the window and falls to her death. Mm-hmm. And that is the end of Joan Crawford. And uh, yeah, and that is indeed the end of a Steven Spielberg, Stefan Spielberg, Uh, episode of Night Gallery and a a promising start for him as well you know it was interesting going into this I thought I was just going to watch you know another another episode of Night Gallery and to see a different story and not only did I see that I also saw kind of the beginnings you know not including obviously the Super 8 films and things that he made but um, the beginnings of, of somebody who would go on to be probably the most famous film director of all time so it's yeah a remarkable thing isn't it and I think there is some nice flourishes there, you know, when we see the Doctor first walk in, that tracking shot down the um, down the corridor in the apartment, the yep. way she's sort of scrabbling around in the dark, and it's completely dark except for hair, um, the glass falling at the end. So there is some nice touches, and that, that's where you kind of think, okay, here's a bit of Spielberg coming through. So, uh, so yeah, shall we um, go on to our final segment? Yeah, certainly. Let's do it. in a very different story, this one. Very different. Okay, so let's go to the last story in the first night gallery called The Escape Route. Gretchen. Talk to me for a moment. What do you want to talk about? 
Something happened last night. And again today. What? I was looking at a picture. Picture of a fisherman on a mountain lake. And after a while, it seemed as if... As if what? As if it were me in that boat. Just fishing. No pain. No running away, no... Looking over my shoulder. What do you expect to see? Ghosts. Israeli ghosts. Okay, The Escape Route, written by Rod Serling and directed by Barry Shear. Joseph Strober is a Nazi war criminal hiding out in a squalid apartment in Buenos Aires. Sick of constantly looking over his shoulder, he becomes taken by the simplicity of a painting in a local museum. A fisherman without a care in the world, sitting in his boat. But nearby is a painting of a Jewish prisoner being crucified in a concentration camp. Strober begins to wonder if he wishes hard enough could he put himself into the picture of the fisherman and get the freedom that he craves? After being recognised by a Holocaust survivor called Bloom, Strober is tracked down by some Nazi hunters who pursue him into the museum. In a last-ditch effort to survive, he kneels in front of the painting, asking God to let him escape into it. Now, this is one of uh, Rod Serling's pet topics, the... Um, either the war itself or the Holocaust, uh, the the Nazis and, you know, what they did during the war, after the war, before the Twilight Zone, during the Twilight Zone, and now after the Twilight Zone. It's something that he returned to quite often. Now, there's this famous episode called Death's Head Revisited in the Twilight Zone about a, a Nazi going back to the prisoner of war camp after the war that he um, that he worked in during the war but this one is a bit different this time we see a nazi war criminal out and about in the world trying to kind of keep his head down so yeah very different what what are, what are your thoughts on this one well tom this is my first participation on the podcast that's rod serling related and i think it's the probably the best time for me to annoy all rod serling fans by uh, <laughs> telling them and you that this is my least favourite of the three stories. Um, mm. I didn't find a lot here to hang my hat on. I have to be honest with you. I get the, the central concept of it, I think, is kind of interesting. Um, but I spent a lot of it thinking this is more or less an episode about a guy who looks at a painting quite a bit. <laughs> so that's my <laughs> my take, and of course, there's more to it than that. You know, I'm being a bit facetious when I say that, but um, yeah, it's it's. I think the actor who plays who's the actor who plays the the um, the Nazi criminal here. Um, his name is Richard Kiley, I think. Right, Richard Kiley. I didn't find a lot a lot going on there. For I didn't find him particularly. Magnetic's a strange word to use for a Nazi war criminal. You know, that's probably not a word you mm -hmm. want to use that often. But I didn't find a lot going on with him. I is there a feeling there of of regret on his part because he has those he has those discussions doesn't he with his neighbor um what mm -hmm. do you make of that and and his 
attitude towards the crimes that he committed. It's funny. Uh, for one, our first disagreement in the episode, because this is actually my favourite right. one of the three. But I, but I think because it's sort of sailing, returning to, to themes that he's done before. So I think that's quite interesting. So maybe that's where that difference is between the two of us. Maybe that's why. It's funny you should touch on that part of it. You know, does he have regret? Because I think that is the the key for me. When he did Death's Head Revisited, that was a, a Nazi completely without regret. Mm. But I think what he's examining here is, does he have regret? Or is he just, you know, looking... Is he looking for forgiveness or is he looking for freedom? You know, it's like someone saying sorry when they, they get caught doing something. And it's like, well, you're not sorry you've done it. You're just sorry you got caught. And I think that's what he's really examining here because sometimes and quite bravely I think sailing is is almost showing him in a sympathetic light because you know he just he just wants peace he just wants to go into that picture and have that peaceful life you know be that fisherman and not have to be constantly looking over his shoulder but is that because he regrets what he's done or is it because he just doesn't like this life anymore? And I think that's the conflict, and that's what I find to be quite interesting in it. Yeah, you put it in an interesting way. I mean, you always do. Whenever we have a disagreement about something, whether it's on The Stranger Deadly Show or anything else, you always <laughs> put it to me in a way that, that makes me think about it in a different way. But I, I suppose my problem with it may be the actor. I mean, I don't find the story of this one. But I mean, you, you said it was written by Rod Serling, right? Yeah, all these three are. All, all three are, right. So it, it has yeah. that, it must have, there must be a personal interest there based on what you said about the Twilight Zone and Death Head's, Death's Head Revisited. Um, mm-hmm. So in a way I feel sort of like I've fallen at the first hurdle with Rod Serling in that I've maybe perhaps I've misunderstood what he's going for here. I, I Because I'm not, a, a quote unquote Serling fan only because I haven't you know seen much of the Twilight Zone all the rest of it not because I don't want to be perhaps it, it's just that I'm looking at it just as a story and uh-huh. what I'm just not getting much from the story itself I, I, I get the, the concept of what you're saying that he's looking at this painting that it's that he's looking at it mournfully in a way that he wants that life that that would be a better life for him but I don't get much out of the actor I don't feel that it's a three-dimensional kind of performance you know for me the, the scene that I liked the most in it was when he's laying in bed and his neighbor's laying in bed on the other side of the wall and they're just having this conversation back and forth and she kind of tells him some things that are true about himself and about mm. his crimes and that that was the, the that's the scene I enjoy the most in this um perhaps I am like you say, perhaps it's just a difference in us in that I'm, I think perhaps when it comes to anthology stories, maybe I prefer the vengeful sort of twist to it and the supernatural aspect of it. Although this has got a supernatural aspect to it as well. Um, in yeah, fact, as yeah. we'll get to towards the end of it. But uh, no, th- this is this is my least favourite of them. But I, I also understand what you're saying. It's one of those things where... If I watch this again, I might think of it in, in okay, Rod Serling has covered this before. Maybe if I saw what he did in The Twilight Zone with something that was thematically similar, it might make more sense to me. So I'm looking at it as as a story itself. I would say, moving towards the end of it, you know, I'm not super fond of the actor playing this particular role. It, it's not, hmm. it doesn't stand out for me particularly. I mean, if I could ask you, actually, before we go to the conclusion, what is it about this that makes it your, your favourite one? Is it the Serling connection being more more akin to what he would do in the Twilight Zone that's kind of selling it better to you? 
I, th- I think that's a big part of it. And I, and I think when we go on, because this, this often comes up in The Strange and Deadly Show too, I think I'm conditioned in a way from the Twilight Zone because I know about Rod Serling. I know mm. the levels he puts into things. On the surface, it might be a story about, you know, aliens coming and turning the lights off in a little town or what have you, but there's always those layers there. And I think in examining the Twilight Zone for so long, I'm, I'm quite conditioned to looking for those things. And that's not to say that, that you don't, but I think I, I, I do pick up on sailing-isms, if you like, <laughs> and, and I know about his life when he was in the war and that kind of thing. So all that probably does come into play. Uh, I think it comes into play a little bit in um, The Stranger Deadly Show too. Sometimes we'll watch a film and, and I'll be like, well, that's a, this is one's about the relationship between a father and a daughter. And you're like, mate, it's about a guy who feeds people to pigs. What are you talking <laughs> about? You know what I mean? But, but I think looking at the Twilight Zone for so long, uh, it has conditioned me in a, in a particular way. And and that's why I, I do look at this. And, and I, I like the actor. I think we differ in that regard. I, I like what he did. But it, it is a very kind of sailing script. I mean, we talked before about people don't talk that way. And you've got this, this sort of... Um, woman of the night who he talks to through his wall and I think it's here who who calls um who says or it's someone who says you are black uniform gods who yep. put barbed wire around the world mm-hmm. you know yep. and who who talks like that but it but that's the sort of beat poetry aspect of sailing's dialogue so so I I think it was it is this aspect of okay the war's over you've done these horrible things and and now you're hiding away. Where does your sorrow come from now? Does it come from the fact that you regret what you've done or just the fact that you can't live your life in a peaceful way anymore because of what you've done? You know, And can we really have sympathy for a person like this? But ultimately, and it's the same in Death's Head Revisited, I think Sailing's sort of takeaway from it is that their crimes were so great that no you you can't you can't have because i mean let's let's get to the end and mm-hmm. because we are running kind of long with this this three-story one in, in the night gallery but he's being chased by nazi hunters and he goes into the museum and he he's kneeling in front of the painting and he, he's like please god get me but he always asks for peace but he never asks for forgiveness mm. And I think that's the key, and that's why... And again, this is a very Twilight Zone-esque thing that happens to him. Maybe if he'd asked for forgiveness, he would have been in that fishing boat, but I think Sailing's message is, no, their their crimes were too great for any kind of forgiveness. But he presents this character in a way where, at times, we, we maybe even do feel a bit of sympathy for him. So I think that's why I prefer this one. Now, see, I I took that a slightly different way, and I may be wrong about this. Again, I I had you seen this episode before? Uh, a few years ago, yeah. Uh-huh. You had okay. So this is my first time viewing it, so it may be I could go back and look at the ending again and be like, no, actually, this isn't the case. But my what I took away from it was that when he goes into the gallery, it's dark in there. Mm-hmm. I thought that the reason he ended up in the crucifixion painting was because he knelt in front of the wrong painting. Yeah. 
that's what I took away from it. Am I wrong about that, or is that...? No, you're completely right. That That's exactly what happened. They moved the paintings because the other one was on loan and it got took away. I take on board fully what you said, Tom. You know, I think it's it's more likely that it's Serling just saying maybe this guy didn't earn forgiveness and he's not asking, as you say, he's not asking for forgiveness. He's asking for you know, the chance to be peaceful somewhere and perhaps he doesn't he doesn't deserve it. But that that's what I took away on more of a surface level, I suppose, is that the reason why he ended up in the wrong painting is because he was kneeling in front of the wrong painting, you mm. know. Yeah, I mean, and again, if it feeds into this uh, this sort of aspect of the Twilight Zone being, being this kind of force. And again, it, it's not explicit in that show, but it's the way I kind of view it. Yes, the painting moved and he was in front of the wrong painting because they'd moved it. But the real reason behind that is that, you know, these things were put into place, the things manoeuvred in a particular way because of who he is and, and what he's done. That Well, that's my takeaway from it anyway. But um, interesting, you know, I'm going to be really interested to see how you kind of tune into the, into the sailing way of writing things as we go along now unfortunately night gallery isn't completely his work there's a lot of stuff by other people in it so you know i'll have to make sure we point out which ones are written by him as we go yeah i mean it's an aspect of the human personality and the human mind that we all sort of see things in different ways really mm. and it's it's a weird thing isn't it when you when you think about it you think we've all got a brain perhaps we'll see patterns we'll recognize things in the same way but i also think that you have so much experience of the rod serling universe uh-huh. his works his writings the tv work that he did you know him so well um that i think that you'll be able to look at that and like like you were saying in your earlier example talking about some of the strange and deadly stuff you pick up on serling isms yeah yeah Whereas I, because I don't know that so well, you know, it would be different if you were coming on to me, one of my great, you know, sort of specialist, quote unquote, expert. I don't like to consider myself an expert of anything, but I'm a big fan of martial arts movies and Shaw Brothers and stuff like that. If you and I were doing like a a Kung Fu podcast together and you were looking at the surface stories, I would be able to come in and say, well, actually, this is, but, you know, sort of, this is a very Shaw Brothers sort of thing to do or whatever. Um, It's interesting the way that you can kind of be influenced in that way by things that you already know. So I definitely think that one of the, one of the twists on this podcast will be that I'm, because I don't know that much about Rod Sterling, I'm looking at the stories more than, more than the writer behind them necessarily Uh that's interesting i mean the things that you've told me and i always tell you this when you bring up points to me when i say oh tom you know i can't believe you like this thing we did that on a strange and deadly uh, thing a while ago um although it was you know slightly facetious i'm not meaning to sort of be be horrible to you about it um i will often go away from that thinking well actually he said some things there that if i went and watched this again I may have a different opinion of it because I didn't really think of it that way, you know, and that's uh-huh. one of the great things about discussing things with people is that you can kind of go, you must never be fixed in your opinion, you know, you must always be willing to to try it. So, But I, I would say, you know, provisionally, this was my least favourite of the three. Yeah. I would say The Cemetery is probably my favourite. Yeah. I is just, it's just about there as well. But, but interesting points you make, Tom, interesting points. Good talk, good talk on this first episode of Night Gallery. So just overall, before we move on to Tales and the Crypt then, what are you thinking of your first exposure to the show? Really enjoyed it, mm-hmm. really, really enjoyed it. I mean, I was a fan, this is the thing, you know, I, I'm new to, to a lot of Serling stuff, but I'm not new to the concept of an anthology horror show. You know, you and I are big horror fans, mm-hmm. so it's not 
you know, I don't need to sort of acclimate myself to, to the concept of that. Um, I think this is a, a strong pilot. You know, I don't know how it's going to differ from, from here on out. Often you'll find that a pilot of a show is actually quite different to the show that then follows yeah, it. Yeah. And they start getting into the meat of it and the tone of it can change sometimes. The amount of pilots that, that I've seen over the years that are very different to the show, the, the episodes that follow is, is remarkable. But the, the, at least two of the stories here I was really, really into. And that's... Hey, that's that's bang for your buck, you know. If you look at, at films like Creep Show, Creep Show Two, not all of the stories are absolutely going to work for you, depending on who you are. Uh-huh. But the most of them do. So yeah, uh, M- the MVP award for me goes to Roddy McDowell <laughs> out of all of it. And if I can say it one more time, Potify, uh, that that will live in my memory for quite a while. Old Roddy, but yeah, I really enjoyed this, Tom. This was a, a great introduction. I can't wait to get into more. And I just have to say to kind of close that off, um, I love Rod Serling coming in. Uh-huh. He walks in there like a boss. He's suited and booted. He comes in there, introduces the painting. And at the end of it, he's basically just like, right, get out now. <laughs> and then he's going to come back next time. And uh, yeah, there's something superbly classy about the man. Good, good. Okay, well, now it's time for me to sit back and put my feet up and listen to you talk a little bit about Tales from the Crypt. So over to you, Chris. So it's Strange and Deadly's television terror, and we're going to cover Tales from the Crypt, starting right at the beginning. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, let me tell you a bit about Tales from the Crypt before I bring in my good friend Tom here to tell me a bit about Tales from the Crypt and his history with it. So Tales from the Crypt's roots are found in its origin as a bi-monthly comic book anthology series published by EC Comics. It debuted in the 1950s, running for 27 issues. British film production company Amicus Productions would release a standalone adaptation of several EC stories in 1972 entitled Tales from the Crypt. The Crypt Keeper here was played by Ralph Richardson. Amicus released a further adaptation of AC Comics stories entitled Vault of Horror. It wasn't until 1989 that the Tales from the Crypt brand would be cemented in the minds of the television watching public, particularly in America, when HBO debuted the legendary TV series. The Crypt Keeper, voiced by actor John Cassia, became an icon. Offering humour and plenty of puns, the character would feature in segments at the beginning and end of an episode, bookending each story. His iconic cackle rumbles in the ears, as does his signature usage of boils and ghouls, as he repairs another spooky tale for the viewer. Tales from the Crypt spawned seven full seasons, a Saturday morning cartoon, I remember that, wow. named Tales from the Crypt Keeper that ran for three seasons, wow. and three feature-length movies in addition to other related spin-offs. Now, Tom, we are not going to cover, because we're sticking mostly to the, to the American um, TV show and, of course, the movies and things like that mm-hmm. on that side of it. What are your memories of the old... Uh, 70s movie Tales from the Crypt released by Amicus you know I don't think I've ever seen it or if I did I've completely forgotten about it so for me Tales I've I've known of it but for me Tales from the Crypt has always been this show really yeah same here I mean I actually was confused by it when I was younger because I knew the TV show and then I would look looked at this old British movie <laughs> that had the same <laughs> title and it's got Joan Collins in it yeah. uh, actually in one of the stories that's going to be covered 
in this very season, this very first season that we're going to get to here. Um, interesting movie, but no, for me, it's always been about the TV show. Did you ever read any of the EC comics? You know, I did spend a bit of time quite fascinated with them because when you hear of the history, you know, uh, the way there was all the uproar about the violence in them and the gore and that kind of thing. It's quite an important time in comic history, isn't it? So I did get a few of the collections back in the day. I really can't remember them now, but I think often the best thing about them was the covers, you know, mm. um, some beautiful covers and the, the stories... A lot of the time, if I remember, I don't want to diminish them for anyone who loves them. A lot of the time, it was just an excuse to get to some gruesome end and, you know, where someone had their face ripped off or something like that. Um, but, you know, it's been a while since I've read them. But I, I did for a time. Well, the comics still hold up. I mean, a lot of I've got a, you know, various collections of vintage horror comics, um, mm. digital, sadly, not not actual physical ones, but... Uh, digital collections of them and they still hold up there's some great artwork there's a lot of them are black and white of course um Mm -hmm. really interesting stuff really interesting and considering the the time period in which they were released fairly dark as well this is the thing about it and that's what you're going to see with tales from the crypt is some of these stories get super dark uh but tell me about the the tv show itself then what are your sort of earliest memories of becoming acquainted with the tales from the crypt hbo series well i never saw it on the original HBO, you know, I used to I used to live in New York uh, about God twenty years or so ago now, mm-hmm. and I would come home every night from work and I would watch Star Trek: The Next Generation, and then Tales from the Crypt. But it's my understanding that when they put Tales from the Crypt on on television, that it was in a cut down version on cable. Right. So I've never actually seen them on cut, and. You know, obviously, the one we're going to be looking at tonight, there's swearing, there's nudity in it, those kind of things. I've never seen any of them in that form. So this journey that we're going on, uh, that that aspect of it is going to be quite new to me. That's it. I mean, some people think rather naively that Game of Thrones was the first HBO show that showed sort of nudity and swearing and <laughs> violence. Not the case, folks. HBO has been you know known for it. It was one of those channels where you could kind of show anything you wanted within reason. Uh, but yeah, Tales from the Crypt, and I think was a good home for it because you're able mm. to show more of these stories. You're able to show them in a more violent way, in a way that, you know, there's not as many restrictions that are placed upon you. So it seems like HBO was the right home for it. It's it's funny that, you know, you and I talk about Night Gallery as well, and that's no nudity, no swearing, no particularly harsh violence in it. So the juxtaposition between the two shows is, is really quite interesting, but... You know, I I love gore, I love violence, Uh, not in my day-to-day life, but in in my entertainment, because I think that's where it should stay. Uh, And as long as you can differentiate between the two things, then then that's the main thing. So, I, I, you know, I'm looking forward to these uncaught tales from the crib. Yeah, and there's a lot of them to get through. And there's a lot of them I haven't seen. I mean, this is the thing. You presenting Night Gallery to me, I believe you, you were saying that, um, you said to me before, that you haven't seen all of Night Gallery, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen all of Tales, but I, it's one of those things. And there are a lot of TV shows that are like this for me. You mentioned Star Trek The Next Generation. This is like it for me as well. Uh, I've seen lots of episodes out of order. <laughs> so yeah. it's, you know, when we were beginning to prepare for this show, I told you that the first episode was one 
that's the second is actually the second episode mm. i told you it was the first because in my mind that's what i remember seeing first and for some reason i had it i had it tagged as that it's just one of those those sad things about memory sometimes it kind of gets embedded in there but i love a horror host tom and mm. there are a few horror hosts as iconic as your boy the crypt keeper voiced by john cassier would it be the same without him even though he doesn't factor into the stories, he bookends them. Would uh, it be the same without the Crypt Keeper? It's a very American thing, isn't it? The horror host. Mm. I think we've only really had uh, one on television. I think his name was something like Dr. Walpurgis, and he was this uh, sort of uh, really made-up creature guy. Mm-hmm. And But it's very much a staple in American television and one I wish we had more of, but... Yeah, what a great one. This one is the Crypt Keeper and this puppet, you know, the the sort of animatronic thing. I, I love the guy. Would Emily Booth count as a horror host these days? Oh, true, true. We do have her. Yeah, as a kind of modern day. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we might have had a, a few on the sort of, you know, the cheapy horror channel type things, but America seems to do it better, I think. So, Tom, let me ask you this. Before we get stuck into tackling this episode of Tales from the Crypt, you've got... Two choices here of your uh-huh. favourite horrors. Now, I realise I'm not taking into account what your own personal choice would be, so perhaps you can throw one in if you have one that's different to these two. But you've got the Crypt Keeper uh-huh. and you've got Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Who are you going for? Okay, all right. I'm going to have to go with Elvira for, for two reasons. She's funny and she's beautiful. So, <laughs> yes, I'll, uh, I'll stick with those. Are you sure that's all the reasons you've picked? Tommy, you sure you don't want to expand on that? Fair enough. No. Uh, is there anyone else you would have thrown in there, or is that...? Uh, not really, because, because that's the thing. We, we're just not ex- as exposed to them over here. Um, you know, I spoke briefly about that British one they did, and I wish they'd bring him back, because he was, he was a fantastic creation, Dr. Mm-hmm. Walpurgis, I think his name was, and... He was really, you know, they really done a good job on him. He wasn't just some dude with his face painted. He was this magnificent creature. Um, but, but yeah, you know, you can't beat Elvira, really. Well, I mean, speaking personally, I would love if, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock at night on, on a Saturday night or something, there was, I mean, I don't know how mainstream you can be at 10 or 11 at night, but there was like a proper horror show with mm. a host a British host, ideally, or an, an American host, whoever it may be, a proper horror show, maybe an anthology show, whatever it would be, introduced by a horror host. I think that would be a great tradition to bring back. And we still, we see there are people on YouTube who are doing it. Mm. Um, so it's kind of carried on in that way, in, in a digital medium. But it seems like otherwise a very traditional American thing that we didn't really get out of here. And that's a shame. I, th- I think we're missing out, really. Definitely, definitely. But we get a good dose of it here with John Cassier's Crypt Keeper. And, of course, we get that classic intro coming into the house, going down into the into the crypt. And there he is down there, cackling away, the rotten old sod, Tom. Like a bobblehead. <laughs> yep, yep, bobblehead. Um, put together with sellotape. But still, I don't know, Tom, there's something brilliant about how sort of weirdly puppet-like he is and how... How practical he is. He feels real to me. Yeah, yeah. He's from that time, isn't he? The time of the practical effects. And I'm, I'm not a CG moaner, you know what I mean? I'm not someone who's constantly moaning about it. But just having him there as a, as a real thing, I think, really counts for something. Yeah, I mean, when they turned Yoda into CG, I was out. I prefer <laughs> puppet Yoda. So, you know, it's a Star Wars reference there. 
Um, so yeah, I agree with you. So now, Tom, let's begin our journey here with season one, episode one uh-huh. of Tales from the Crypt. Now, this is the man who was death. What's interesting is that in this first season, some of the stories are actually not from Tales from the Crypt. They're from sort of offshoots of Tales from the Crypt. And this is one such story. Uh-huh. This was adapted from issue 17 of Crypt of Terror. And this was directed by Walter Hill, Tom, who directed uh-huh. one of my favourite films, The Warriors. Yeah. And I would imagine probably a, a, a favourite of yours as well. Definitely, definitely. I'm a country boy, but I like the city. You know? Big, dirty. Let's know what it really is. But at night, there's all those lights. It's real pretty, isn't it? My name's Niles Talbot. I've been the executioner in this state for the last 12 years. When I got here from Oklahoma, I caught on as an electrician, and after a while, I got a job out to the prison, taking care of the generators. I like electricity. It's dependable. You can trust it. Let's say do it with gas or with some lethal injection. I don't take to that. That's how you kill a dog or a cat or something, not a man. It's got to be the old electric chair for me. Yes, the air date for this was the 10th of June 1989, Tom. I was but a young lad. You, I believe, were in your 50s back then, something <laughs> Something like I that. I think so. I think Somewhere so. Somewhere around there. And the uh, the main guy here, really, the actor who kind of carries the whole thing is Bill Sadler. Now, what do you remember of Bill Sadler? He, he's a guy who, he's one of those character actors, isn't he, who you, you kind of see everywhere. And you yeah. don't necessarily remember his name, but you just, he's got a great face for the screen, I think. Yeah, he's one of those actors, isn't he, that you, you do see him in a lot of stuff, but he's often the supporting guy. So not necessarily in a lead role. So this is quite... Um, rare, you know, he's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe these days. He plays the president sometimes in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., that kind of thing. But he's always a kind of welcome presence, I think. Definitely, yeah. When you see him in it, you know that he's going to put in a good performance. He's a solid guy. Mm. So let me read you the synopsis of this one, and then we'll get stuck into discussing the episode. So electrician Niles Talbot is a gleeful prison executioner. He relishes taking the lives of the criminals sent to his chair. After all, they committed the crime, they deserve the punishment. When the state decides to abolish the death penalty, Niles finds himself out of a job. Taken to the streets, he notices that crime continues unabated. Uh, Attending court cases, he sees criminals being released by the justice system and decides to carry his former role over to his new life. He tracks down and electrocutes those who got away. However, the police are beginning to track down this mysterious new killer. As luck, or rather misfortune, would have it, the state is about to bring the death penalty back, and Niles may be heading for the chair like the victims he once took glee in sending to hell. So, Tom, the man who would be death. So we begin here with a narration from... I mean, this is all done... um, He's breaking down the fourth wall throughout Mm. this. Uh, is Bill Sadler, a.k.a. Niles Talbot, and he's talking to the audience, and he's telling them about his job. And it's a job that he rather enjoys, Tom, which is um, electrocuting prisoners in the old chair. He even makes a point of, you know, he says at one point, 
most of these guys they don't they don't make a point of looking the criminal in the eye before they before they pull the switch but i do so he takes uh-huh. glee in in taking the lives of these of these men doesn't he yeah what a great kind of way of hooking you in though don't you mm. think because you know it's the first episode of a new series and anthology shows you're not setting up ongoing characters apart from the crypt keeper so you really got to draw people in and i think having them speak to the audience in that way and he's got a job that whether you agree with the death penalty or not you know the people who do that job it is a source of fascination for me you know what goes on in their head how can they do what they do that kind of thing so to have one of them an executioner just talking to you in such a calm way uh, I think it is a really good way of introducing the show. Definitely, really draws you in, and it makes you feel like you're part of the story because mm. he's taking you along for the ride. Now, unfortunately, Tom, they the state have decided to abolish the death penalty. Was well, unfortunately for Niles, I should say, because you know this is not a show where we're going to discuss whether we agree with the death penalty or not. It's not really that kind of show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Niles certainly doesn't agree with it. Uh, doesn't agree with the abolishment of it because it means that he's out of a job. Now he was an electrician at the prison and he was hoping okay well fair enough i can't um execute these prisoners he was promoted to that job i can't execute them anymore but surely i can have my old job back and take care of the power generators down there and they say well no we've you trained somebody to take take that job over so in a way he's set on his mission because he's basically been told well you look you're the old guard now and there's new people who are coming in so get out go onto the streets and and, you know, you're not wanted anymore. So that kind of starts off that attitude. And then we've got him kind of standing at that overpass there, um, talking to the audience again and narrating what's happening. And he goes to a bar, has a drink, sits down. Um, and But what he's noticing is that crime is continuing. Criminals are still going unpunished. And what's going to happen now that they're abolishing the death penalty? How are these guys going to pay for it? So I think it's a good conceit, isn't it, for for an episode this guy is a vigilante yeah and i think what's interesting is you wonder about him because he is quite personable isn't he you know he's very Mm. calm you know he's not uh prone to fits of rage or anything like that he just kind of talks to you very matter-of-factly he's got a bit of a twinkle in his eye and you do wonder if he didn't have this outlet that his job gave him would he be a killer himself anyway? Does yeah. he ju- does he justify it to himself in that way? So when that job is taken away from him, is it really about justice or is it just that he needs to kill? You know, and I'm not sure it explores it in in much depth, but I, I think it, it's certainly there to to kind of chew over. But it's probably worth saying at this point that these episodes are only about half an hour long, mm. so they haven't got that much time to develop it and one of the great things about Tales from the Crypt is in a lot of the stories not always as is the case with anthology shows but in a lot of the cases they manage to convey everything they need to convey with a limited amount of time so you haven't got you know I could imagine this stretching out to an hour potentially and maybe we we learn more about what his life is like because we don't really learn anything about his home life for example Uh what that would have been like but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he's not a million miles away from the Punisher in that he just sees bad guys as uniformly bad and yeah. doesn't see anything, doesn't see any good in them at all. And if if there's a miscarriage of justice somewhere along the line, which unfortunately there are a lot of them in the real world, there's there's a miscarriage of justice. He's going to try and take revenge for that. So he's attending these different court cases, kind of sitting in the audience there. 
and he you know they, they, he notices these people who are getting let off they're being sent uh-huh. out into the wild free and he's not happy about that Tom he essentially becomes for a little while a serial killer uh, but he he considers it being a vigilante. Now, I suppose the thing is, someone like the Punisher, for example, he's gonna he wants to get the job done, and he's gonna do it in a way that is sort of you know quick and easy to do. This guy, do you, do you get the feeling that he enjoys killing people a bit too much? Yeah, well, I mean that's the that's the whole question, isn't it? You know, is it about the justice, or is it that he just likes killing people? But it's interesting you, you said about it's only half an hour long. Man, when they cut these things down, they must have been like, what, <laughs> you know, 25 <laughs> minutes or something, 20 minutes, I don't know. But, you know, they used to play so many commercials in America that that really used to um, pad things out. But I suppose it's not the smartest move, is it, that he's killing all these people with electricity and... He's just been laid off as the executioner using the electric chair. It's not going to take long for someone to put two and two together, is it? No, not at all. And you know, let's not forget at the beginning of it as well, when he's taking one particular prisoner to the to the chair, they're sort of ranting and raving, panicking because their life is going to be over, and saying, "Yeah, no, no, the governor will call. The governor will call and intervene and stop this from happening." But he spent, you know, most of this episode being quite cool, calm and collected. Mm. He finds this couple and they've been released. They, One guy basically cheated on his wife, got his wife killed so he can run off with this young lady. He, um, Niles comes in and electrocutes them both in a hot tub. Yeah. And he takes on his final mission, doesn't he, Tom, at a strip club? Funnily enough, the couple in the hot tub, um, the male actor is called Garrett Graham. Mm. And... 20 years ago, when I used to work in New York, <laughs> who used to come into the restaurant every day that I worked? The same restaurant that I almost ran into Roddy McDowell in, but Garrett Graham. Wow. So here's a, here's a little coincidence for you. But, um, but yeah, he used to come in every day. He used to cook him his dinner. Very, very nice chap, you know, kept himself to himself. Read a little book and ate his dinner. But, um, yeah, very small part in this. He, but he is one of those sort of character actors who yeah. pops up in everything. You see him everywhere, yeah. And yeah. you, you recognise him. I didn't even know his name, to be honest with you, but I, I know his face. It's, it's a funny thing, isn't it, about some of these character actors? You don't really know their name, but like Bill Sadler, I wouldn't be able to tell you his name offhand, but you no. see his face and you go, oh, it's that guy, I love that guy. Yeah, the Shawshank guy. Yeah, the Shawshank guy, which is an interesting parallel there as well in that this is... You know, some of it takes place within the prison. Of course, Shawshank would be one of his most notable roles in, in terms of, you know, mainstream notice anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a big, on such a big sort of scale because Shawshank Redemption is such a big, enduring thing. And of course, he was a, a character in that. So, yeah, yeah, an interesting thing. Your restaurant sounds interesting, Tom. You're just in there meeting celebrities, man, cooking them dinner. Everyone came in, everyone. <laughs> Rod Sailing, <Sailinger>. no, he didn't. <laughs> Dame Edna Everidge was in there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But no, it, I mean, occasionally you would get some, but it's just a crazy coincidence that on these occasions, two of the people who came in were in the shows we're discussing tonight. So yeah, Tom, we are heading towards this man's final mission here, which is at a strip club. 
Mm-hmm. There's a woman in the papers that he's seen as committed. I can't remember what crime she committed, to be honest with you, but she's dancing up in a cage. And we get some nudity here, Tom. And yeah, the, the HBO influence here. Uh, we get some nudity and some swearing here. I mean, that's the thing about tales. Uncut, they're able to get away with more than what they could do on, on standard cable. But it'd be interesting, actually, to, to see like the cut version of this, just to see. Obviously, they would have cut, cut out any of the nudity or whatever. And it might have... It, I can only imagine it making the scene more choppy. Yeah, you know, I wonder, did they... Because you, you sometimes hear of people um, filming airline versions of films, don't you, where, you know, they might do a more toned-down of uh, scene for something. I'm not mm. sure if, if it's something they do these days. But I do wonder, did they, you know, did they do a scene where all the women had their tops on in the strip club, or did they just cut those bits out completely, you know? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I know Breaking Bad is an example of one of the early episodes of it. There's a woman in a window who is topless and mm. they actually put in the, on the versions they showed on TV, they actually digitally put a bra on her. Oh, right. And then, yeah. And then obviously in the uncut version, you, you see a nude. Uh, but yeah, he's sitting there at the bar looking at the woman and he decides that he's going to electrocute her to death in the cage. Uh-huh. And he flips a switch, Tom, and nothing happens. As it would turn out, the police had been on his trail and they come in and they get him. Yeah. And they capture him. And now here comes the bit where we talk about a convenient plot because as he's he's taken in, he's being talked to, the guy's telling him there, well, as it happens, uh, since you've been away, um, the state have decided to bring the death penalty back. So, (laughs) you, you know, it's... What can you say about that? So, you know, it's convenient for the story, isn't it? Yeah, and and again, <laughs> you know, without some sort of overriding force to to bring these things, you know, <laughs> our politicians can't get anything done, you know, for months <laughs> on end, unless it's bombing a country or something. Yeah. That, you know, it takes them forever to decide on on stuff. So, but these <laughs> these just bring it back. Yeah, he's out on the street for three yeah. weeks, and <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's a convenient thing, but. The good thing about it is that it then it draws parallels back to the beginning where here's this guy who's been cool, calm and collected, who's taking criminals who are panicking. He's kind of treating them in a somewhat mocking way. Now, as he's being taken towards the electric chair, because they're going to give him the death penalty for for committing these murders, uh, as they're bringing him towards, he's panicking. And he's losing his call, and he's saying, "No, no, the governor will call. This is, you know, he'll help me because he knows what I did for this system." But they put him in the chair, and the narration at the it's, it's you know it's cruel in a way because the narration at the end from him he gets electrocuted in the chair. There's no getting out of this. Or in Tales from the Crypt, um, it's not that often that you'll see you know the the person who is in a dire situation prosper. Yeah. It doesn't happen that often. Um, so, you know, this guy is going to get electrocuted. But then the cruel bit is that his narration at the end where he's like, this isn't going to happen. You know, they're not going to put me in that chair. But they do, Tom. They, they do. do. And that is the end of old Bill Sadler. Now, I, I think this is a very good start for this season. I think it's it's an enjoyable episode. It draws you in because you're being talked to by the character. I think Bill Sadler is, is a solid presence here carries the whole thing really because they're not there's no other characters that have any depth to them other than him everything kind of hangs on him um how are you feeling about the beginning here the man who was death i think it's a great start too you know 
It is short, especially in comparison to obviously what we've watched recently with Night Gallery and that kind of thing. But it's just, it seems to be just long enough, doesn't it? And you could have spread this out into a bigger story if you if you'd have wanted to. But just these bite-sized little things that don't take too long, they come and go, has a little sting in the tail, and a great sort of central performance by Bill Sadler, who, like you said, he, he talks to us, and pretty much a perfect first episode for getting you on board. Not that gruesome. I, I'm going to be curious to see how much blood is going to be in, in the future, or do they just have... Mm-hmm you know, violence more sort of suggested by the way people move, that kind of thing. I'm going to be curious how bloody it actually gets because I can't really remember. Well, I won't spoil that for you then in that case. I'll kind of let you be surprised Mm -hmm. by that. But yeah, it's interesting. I think what will be the most interesting thing for me is on episodes that I haven't seen, to see if there are stories where you get to the end of that half an hour and you think, oh, this needed another half an hour on top. You know, because, uh, I mean, if you look at films like Creepshow, for example, Creepshow was released in 84, mm-hmm. I think. So it was before this show came out and it was inspired by EC Comics. Um, but those the segments on Creepshow, they're longer. And so you get to kind of get into the story and get out of it and still cover a lot of detail. This, I think, is perfect for what it is. But you could also imagine this maybe being a segment of something like Creepshow, couldn't mm. you? And maybe having 40 minutes or so. Yeah. To, to flesh it out a bit more but I think what we get here is, is quite good I just like the idea of of this kind of, this guy is basically a bit of a show off because he was an electrician who got promoted to um, this executioner position um, he's taking lives and at the end of it even though he's kind of making fun of these criminals who are falling to pieces at the end when they're about to lose their lives at the, at the very end of it that's all he is yeah Exactly. You know, that's what he becomes. He's just a, a snivelling, sad, crying man who doesn't want to die. <laughs> and um, and that is the thing about Tales from the Crypt. And I said it to you even on some of the Night Gallery stuff. Uh, Tales from the Crypt. So these stories, if you're going to be boastful, <laughs> they will sometimes reward you with punishment. Yeah. Punishment isn't really a reward, but you know mm-hmm. what I mean. So a good start, I think. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know... With us, mind you, that these episodes are going to be spaced in a in a particular way. You know what I mean. But I, I think it's going to be interesting to see going forward the variations on on this kind of um, twist in the tail end. And you know what what you put out there comes back to you. You know we might overdose on it by the end of by the end of this run. <laughs> to be honest, because we're going to be seeing it so often. But you know it was used well in this one, even though that uh, that plot point is a bit of a convenience. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we may just have to get used mm. to that as being the reality that sometimes you have to have a, pon- a plot con- contrivance in order to to get a, you know a good twist at the yeah, end of yeah. it. But so yeah, Tom, how are you feeling about it? The, we've started on our journey of Tales from the Crypt. I'm feeling good. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm looking forward to more. I, I wish we, you know, we're going to space these a particular way. I wish it could be more often, and sometimes it might be if we've got the time. But you know. This is a good start, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into more because it's it's clearly, you know, I think you said it's it is a bit trashier, but it's still a quality put together show, isn't it? Oh yeah, and listen, some of the actors who who arrive here throughout this season and the ones to follow, there's some great actors who come in, mm. some great actors from the 80s and the 70s and and so forth. So you know, it's not like they they're working with amateurs here. 
No. You get to see some some you know some really big people here, and let me just say this about the second episode. I don't want to spoil any plot stuff for you. All I'll say is you like eighty slashers, right? Oh yeah, and you're going to love the next episode, buddy. Or or will you? Who knows? Mm. But that might be the order of the day. So that will be episode two of Tales from the Crypts on Strange and Deadly Television Terror next time around. Okay, so that's our double bill of horror anthologies. A bit longer than usual, I think, because obviously the Night Gallery one was a the pilot episode and the stories went on a bit longer. That's usually going to be an hour. So it, it sort of weighs slightly more in Night Gallery's favour, but... You know, this Patreon space is a rod sailing space, so that's okay. But you get this lovely sting in the tail with Tales from the Crypt. So, Chris, I've enjoyed it. You know, it's uh, it's something new for us. And, and I think every time you start a new podcast, you're always kind of feeling your way through that first episode, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. You, you know, it's rare that you're going to nail it the first time around unless you happen to be an experienced radio disc jockey. And neither of us are, but we've been doing this for a long time podcast and of course we po- we do two other podcasts with each other so we, we're pretty well used mm-hmm. to each other um but it's just the material itself that is kind of quite new for you especially for me on the night gallery side so but yeah i've really enjoyed this man thank you very much for having me on this is uh like you sort of said earlier on you could have had somebody who was more of a surning expert to come in and that may be an interesting as well but having me on there and being a bit green and I appreciate your time yeah yeah absolutely well i can't wait to get into more you know there's going to be some ups and downs the way that goes it's not always going to be of this quality but sometimes it's going to be higher quality as well so there's, there's mm. that to look forward to and tales and crypt just seems to be a good time so uh so we will get into that too so this is our first episode of strange and deadly's television terror like i said in the intro show we'll commit to it being bi-monthly but you know when we can we might throw the odds monthly episode in as well but uh, we will see how it goes. But there's definitely going to be bi-monthly, and uh, I look forward to the next one. Okay, Chris, anything from you before we go? Not really, just, you know, thank you very much, and thank you to the patrons for supporting this. It's fantastic of you to do so. And I said it earlier on, but I, I, I kind of said it in passing, really. I have said this to you personally about 500 times, So it, it, but it'll be the first time on a podcast, I think, that I've said it. <sighs> Congratulations on your awards win, my friend. You deserve that more than anyone I know. I'm super proud of you. I've known you for 11 or 12 years now, something like that. You know, it's been a long time now. And I've seen the Twilight Zone podcast go from strength Mm -hmm. to strength. It started at a grassroots level, just you doing it. You're not an industry back kind of guy. So this the success of your Patreon is all down to you, man. It's all down to the one man machine that is Mr. Tom Elliott. And uh, I couldn't be proud of you, man couldn't be proud of you and I'm, I'm very very happy for your success you know i was as you well know but n- nobody else does i was up at half past five in the morning looking for the results <laughs> and then i had to wait till about 10 o'clock at night to tell anybody about it publicly <laughs> so um so you deserve it my friend i appreciate that man thank you and, uh, and i'm glad you're on board for this journey as well and you can come into this world as well and and see what it's all about so definitely that's uh, that's going to be the joy of this show for me so that is strange and deadly's television terror and we will speak to you next time. You've been listening to Strange and Deadly's Television Terror, the Patreon-exclusive show for supporters of the Twilight Zone podcast, with music by Danny Davis and artwork by Dark Inc. One, presented by Chris Clayton and Tom Elliott. 
All clips used in the show are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. <laughs>